Well, I started out down a dirty road. You said many times how much you love this team, the players, the camaraderie, the whole thing. What is it about this group? Well, I say they got the is. I don't know what that is, but when the team has it, it's pretty cool. Can't manufacture it. You can't go out and put it together to create it. But when you're on a club that has that it factor, um, it's something. It's like you don't ever want the year to end. Brian Snitker, after the Braves clinched the division, 42 years in the organization, finally getting his chance. Ken Rosenthal, our colleague with Fox Sports, asked him what did this moment mean to him, and he said. I'm a Brave, and I thought that kind of summed wow, it up, yeah. not just for Brian Snitker individually, but for everybody in Braves country. You've been in this organization more than 40 years. You've seen the glory days, you've seen some hard days. What is it like for you just going back to the postseason as the manager of this team? Well, I'm very proud of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a Brave. And uh, this is, uh, it's really special. This young man is just playing the game. You know, he's he's my kid. I'm gonna protect him. Now a 3-1 for Acuna. Swinging a high fly ball, deep to left field, way, way back, it's gone! The grandest of all home runs. A towering fly ball to the left field bleachers by Ronald Acuna. Three balls, two strikes, two out, bottom of the ninth. Jansen to Freeman. Swung on and missed strike three. The Dodgers beat the Braves six to two, and for the third consecutive season, the Dodgers are going to the National League Championship Series. I thought we had a great group of guys in this clubhouse. Um, thought we had a real shot at winning this thing, but it just didn't happen for us this year. You know, we fell up a little short, but you know, we gave them um, October baseball. I hope they remember how good it felt when we clinched the division and, you know, as they head for, you know, to their offseason and their workouts and when they get to spring training to, you know, they'll have an eye on the, on the prize there. I mean, when we talk about it, they're going to have experienced it and know how good that feeling is. What would you say you do here? It's Stone's Weekly Dose. Because I'm kind of an idiot. I'm a dumb guy. Brian, you don't have to keep trying so hard to impress me. I already really like you. Your midweek download destination. I told you about Brian. I told you. Come on, man. Brian was just making a joke. I'm so lucky to have met you, Brian. You're such an amazing guy. It's Stone's Weekly Dose. And note to self, don't have a really bad bullpen and a very weak bench or you might lose in the NLDS. I'm sorry, I meant don't die. Welcome in to your midweek download destination. It is the Stone on Air podcast, the supposed for-profit venture that is available every Wednesday. Huh, what a last couple of days. Appreciate you being here. It's October 10th, 2018. So many things going on that are blowing my head off. I can't even, I can't even say out loud what they all are. Call that a long-term tease in the life 
that is the show. My name is Brian. You likely already know that by now. Coming up on today's show, really just two two pieces of subject matter. And as I often say, it'll take as long as it takes. If it takes 20 minutes, it takes 20. If it takes 45, if it takes an hour, you get the idea. Um, at Stone on Air and all social media is how you can get a hold of me. And it's not that this show is not prepared for, because in certain ways it is. But on paper, it's not. I have like three things written down on uh, the quote-unquote show sheet. And that is, first of all, to remind myself to let everybody know that today... October 10th, 2018 is my half birthday. So today I am 38 and a half years old. So feel free to tell me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever. Give me a ring on my cell. Send me a text to tell me happy half birthday because today, in fact, is my six months in between the two birthdays. April 10th is the real birthday. October 10th is the half birthday, so that every year when baseball begins, I am celebrating my real birthday, and virtually roughly right around the same time, six months later, when baseball generally for the team I'm pulling for ends, I'm celebrating my half birthday. So as long as we get that out of the way and everybody is uh, understanding of the situation here. So coming up in the second segment of the show, I am going to tell you about my trip to court why I was there, and how fascinating I thought it was. And was it any kind of really different kind of day? Was there anything really to get excited about and make sure you did a big show about and wrote home about, as they say? No, not really. But whenever you do something that you've never done before, especially when you're 38 and a half to the day, years old, and you experience something new, that's cool. Like, you know, you take it for granted when you're young because you're not thinking about any of the, those kinds of things that you're constantly experiencing new things. And when you get into your mid 30s and into your 40s and certainly in your 50s, well, the list becomes shorter of the things that you've never experienced. And so when you do get to do something you've never done before, it's uh, or at least I, this is how I look at it, how I feel about it. I find it uh, fascinating, even if it's not something I like or understand, or if I find it boring or exciting, it isn't the point. It's just kind of watching something in motion that I've never seen before. So I'll get to that in the final segment of the show. Here in the first segment of the show, I'm going to talk baseball. So I'm going to already have a bunch of people running off and not all that interested in hanging out today, and that's fine. I um, you know, I, I talk about it a lot. that It is a gamble with this concept of this show every week that it is just basically whatever I feel like talking about. And it's, it's so it's not a show about baseball, right? It's not a show about the Atlanta Braves. You do something like that, you make a niche audience and you try to gear towards, you know, potentially all over the country, but certainly in the region to try to reach out to Peterson and whatever your topic is. Whether that topic is quilting or whether that topic is The Walking Dead or you get the idea. I could do that. I could do a, a Braves show every week. I've thought about it. I think it would be kind of fun, except it's a hell of a lot of damn work if you want to do quality production, if you want to do a quality show. It is a lot of work. I mean, any old asshole can turn on a you know my iPhone and do a, do a podcast, but that's clearly not what I do here. So I've decided that if I'm going to do this, spend the time that it takes, take the effort, or make the effort, I should say, then I want to do what I want to do. 
And as I've talked about since uh, the, the the firing from Fraud Radio two, uh, two uh, whatever odd years ago it was now, that once I started doing new stuff, whether it be in, with through employment like I have now with the with Alt 98.7 or with this standalone podcast, I call the shots. I make the rules in all within reason. I get it. I'm not, you know, I'm not delusional about it. But I'm not doing anything that I don't have control over. And I decided for this purpose, for this show, it's just going to be about whatever I want. And so some people are going to think that's really interesting if I'm talking about things they care about. And some people are going to find it boring. And I get that. And I'm cool with it. So as I get into uh, this segment here to talk, I'm talking about baseball in general. I'm just going to kind of ramble, talk about the Braves. Such a fun season. I love baseball so much. When I grew up, I was, you know, your typical you know, middle class, middle class, white American family that their kids played. Some of us played soccer. I didn't all played baseball, a lot of basketball, all that typical stuff. Um, anywhere from, you know, millennial generation to what I still always will consider myself as the uh, Gen X, a, a young Gen Xer or a very, very, very old millennial. But I, I still don't even subscribe to that. But so, yeah, we played a bunch of ball, and I, I wasn't all that good. My brothers and sisters, two brothers and a sister, they were always all-stars. They were always all-stars, as I've talked about in the past. Our genetic makeup is fantastic. That ain't, that, none of us kids did anything to do that, to, you know, so it's not a boast. That's the bloodlines of my parents and my family that gave us a good genetic makeup. They were very, very good at playing sports. I was only, I was very, very marginal. I could hang around just enough to make people think I could play. I have an athletic... Um, look like when I'm throwing the ball, catching the ball, running around in the field. Um, I I look like I'm I know what I'm doing, and that's that's how I've always been with everything in my life, from playing guitar and playing in bands, and hell maybe even radio and podcasting. I don't know. I I can fool anybody and think, hey, that guy looks like he's pretty good over there. But the end result is I'm really not that good at all. And I was always jealous and envious of my uh, brothers and sisters. I was the oldest, so I'm supposed to be the best, right? That's how that usually works out, or at least that's how the perception within the family, or at least, you know, in certain circles, think about it. And I was never the best. I was never even kind of the best. And it was irritating to me. But I, I loved all sports. And as I got into my 20s, I really loved sports. Watch football every weekend. Watch all the college games, all the pro games, all the base, Monday night baseball, Sunday night baseball, Wednesday night baseball. And then as I got into my 30s, I still liked sports, but it was starting to fade away from whether how much time I spent on it. And then in the last three to five years, very specifically the last like two years, I don't care about sports at all except for my teams. Um, throughout my radio career and aspirations to be in radio, my dream job was always to be a sport talk radio host. That's what I felt like I could I could kill it at. That's where I felt like I would, you know, w- with minimal effort could be at least uh, a, a above average at that kind of medium. And I even remember Bill Lockhart, speaking of uh, those frauds over there, I love Bill and uh, love several of them still. You guys know that. Bill, one, one day when he was kind of having a powwow with me when I first started working, said, dude, I can see you on in the afternoons on Sport Talk. That's, that's where you need to be. Now, I was 25 years old, something like that. So I cer- certainly appreciate him saying something like that because at that time, that was, that was my passion and my dream. Over the course of the next 10 years or so, I've started to realize that most sport talk radio is boring. God, it's boring, 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 boring. 
and um, and I've gotten to where I, I would be bored to tears if I had to do a sport talk radio show. Hey, the balls play some team this weekend, Georgia Tech Institute, blah, blah. You know, God, who cares? But the teams that I love, I still love and follow them very, very closely. And the Braves are my first love. Titans are my second. And that's about it. Everything else is just kind of background noise. Before I get too much more into that, I want to play a couple of clips here for you real quick that I pulled together right as I was putting the show together. Ken Burns does incredible documentaries. Many people, especially uh, far uh, right-leaning, will tell you that he's incredibly biased. I don't fact-check everything I see on there. Um, Maybe he is, maybe he's not. But when it comes to baseball, his 10-part documentary that started in like 19... I don't know, it was in the 1980s, and then he did the final one around uh, the turn of the century, I think, maybe 2000, 2001. It is some of the most riveting television I've ever seen. It is quite literally 12 hours long, and um, and, and I, I call it riveting, and there's a very good possibility that almost everybody listening to this would watch certain portions of it and be bored to tears because it's so in-depth. It starts in like 1890, and it ends in 1998 or 2000, 1999, and it in-depthly, comprehensively breaks down every era, every portion of every season for basically 100 years. It is it is remarkable stuff, but it is so detailed, it could come across as boring. This is the opening, I'm going to play it in two parts, from the very first episode, if you will, of baseball. It's labeled in innings, 10 innings long, so it's 10 volumes this is the opening of the very first episode of baseball from Ken Burns, inning number one. It measures just nine inches in circumference, weighs only about five ounces, and is made of cork wound with woolen yarn, covered with two layers of cowhide, and stitched by hand precisely 216 times. It travels 60 feet 6 inches from the pitcher's mound to home, and it can cover that distance at nearly 100 miles an hour. Along the way, it can be made to twist, spin, curve, wobble, rise, or fall away. The bat is made of turned ash, less than 42 inches long, not more than 2 and 3 quarter inches in diameter. Batter has only a few thousandths of a second to decide to hit the ball. And yet the men who fail seven times out of ten are considered the game's greatest heroes. It is so remarkable to think about that in the game of baseball, that the best players in the league, the best players across the history of the sport is docu- well-documented history, 120-year-old history, that the best players in the league fail around 70% of the time. 70% of the time of trying to perform the task of reaching base or getting a base hit, 70% of the time, if you're a failure, then you're one of the best in the game. And while the overall popularity of baseball might not seem like it's there, 
I don't believe it. I believe that it's still a game passed down from generation to generation, uh, fathers and sons throwing the ball around, whether it's being played at the same level as other sports. I'll get into that more here in a minute, but it is truly played by children, by men, now by women, by old men in prison yards, or I'll let the second half of the opening of Kinsburn's first inning explain. It is played everywhere in parks and playgrounds and prison yards, in back alleys and farmers' fields, by small children and old men, raw amateurs and millionaire professionals. It is a leisurely game that demands blinding speed. The only game in which the defense has the ball. It follows the seasons, beginning each year with the fond expectancy of springtime, and ending with the hard facts of autumn. It is a haunted game in which every player is measured against the ghosts of all who have gone before. Most of all, it is about time and timelessness, speed and grace, failure and loss, imperishable hope, I apologize for the tingy nature of that uh, recording. Pulled it from YouTube. Ken Burns got a tight grip on that copyrighted material. But that's the kind of thing that that documentary is. So you can see it's a little sleepy at times for sure. And you might be saying, little sleepy, bro. <laughs> Completely sleepy. But um, it's it's quite incredible stuff. And it it is just a sport I love to death. And I growing up, watching it, playing it. My birthday right there at spring train. The you know opening day is almost always on my birthday. It's my favorite time of year. Every single year, I I come alive. Now everybody's spring. I get it. We all like we all get a pep in our step in spring. It's not like it's just me, but it just always seems to work out that all the things and a lot of things that don't have anything to do with baseball that I won't get into right now. But countless things are all coming together right there in that first week of April. And it's just, I mean, it's just a beaming of anticipation, uh, a renewed uh, optimism, uh, happiness. It's just, it's my favorite time of the year, the first week of April. And again, a lot of other reasons for that. Um, I also grabbed some audio here real quick from George Carlin. Good chance you've heard some of this. I bet you haven't in a long time. I'm playing two portions of this as well for two different reasons. But uh, he compares baseball and football a lot. But one of the things that makes baseball so interesting it is it is such a different kind of game than most organized games. Most games have clocks. Most games have, or all games virtually have the offense in control of the ball. Um, much more... Um, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly, specifically understood rules as opposed to gentlemen's understandings that was in a thing in baseball for so long. Uh, the, no, there's no clock. The game can go forever. It is, um, it's just such a differently structured game that to me makes it so new, unique. Now, maybe that makes it look foreign and stupid and boring to younger people these days. I'm not sure. 
Uh, again, I'll get into more about where I think the popularity of the sport is before I get out of here, but this is George Carlin back in 1990. I'd like to talk a little bit about baseball and football. Starting with baseball. Baseball is different from any other sport in a lot of different little ways. For instance, in most sports, you score points or you score goals. In baseball, you score runs. In most sports, the ball or the object is put in play by the offensive team. In baseball, the defense puts the ball in play, and only the defensive team is allowed to touch the ball. In fact, in baseball, if an offensive player touches the ball intentionally, he's out. Also, most sports, the team is run by a coach. In baseball, the team is run by a manager. And only in baseball does the manager or the coach have to wear the same uniform the players do. Can you picture Bill Parcells in his New York Giants uniform? That is one thing that I take away differently than the traditionalists. I do think it's pretty pretty silly that the uh, managers, often much pretty older men from the players, at least by 10 to 20, 30 years, are sitting around wearing spikes and, uh, and an overall uh, uniform. But, uh, hey, whatever. Wear whatever you want, I guess. But so over the course of, I don't know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, baseball started to lose popularity and football started to pick up. And it's, it's interesting to think about it now because how football is now being viewed as this barbaric, dangerous sport – uh, there's all the political mess in there, which half of that is fake outrage anyway. But the uh, the the damage that is happening to people's brains and the and the health health and safety risks of players playing football is not fake outrage. And people are keeping their kids away from that game. And once upon a time, it used to be, oh, we're all manly men around here, right? And this goes back to me talking about last week with. Um, uh, in relation to the Me Too thing, where where the and the guy who uh, said women ruin everything in Saudi Daisy or whatever, he can he comes from this mold of we're man, we're men, we we hit tough, we hit rough, we don't you know we're not a bunch of pussies that kind of thing, and this next kind of point that uh, uh, George Carlin's making during this this comedy bit. It's kind of why baseball started to fall off and football became so popular. But also, once again, it was a different time, and this was just uh, 28 years ago. Baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. <laughs> Whoops! Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, blocking, piling on, late hitting, unnecessary roughness, and personal fouls. Baseball has the sacrifice. Baseball has a seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. Baseball has no time limit. We don't know when it's going to end. We might have extra innings. 
Football is rigidly timed and it will end even if we have to go to sudden death. The entire bit is really funny. It's about four or five minutes long and it is just, it was a different world then. And I do believe that at that time, the uh, the popularity of the what would become the most popular sport in America was shifting to football. What is fascinating to me about baseball over all these years is how sacred the record keeping is. I've always been fascinated by the concept of of record keeping, of uh, keeping historical uh, data, and who had to be in charge of that in the most primitive times of of civilization. When is it that somebody sits down and says, "Hey, we can't just let days pass and not document this stuff. Um, we have to have historical perspective." And it's fascinating to me to think about the people who first decided to do that. Again, I'm going back and however long you're talking about in uh, the beginning of civilization. But at the turn of the century, post-Civil War, when uh, America and the world in general, but certainly uh, more specifically talking about our country, where we were finally seeing like visions of modernized America. It really is into the turn in the 19 early 1900s when the, you know the, the Rockefellers and the steel industry and all these things are starting to really become like okay, we we actually can do this idea we've had for the last 120 years maybe. We're finally getting some kind of semblance of modernized civilization and baseball goes right in step with that entire process in the late uh, uh, late 1800s, post-Civil War. And so the historical fact-checking of modernized America goes right in step with the f- historical fact-checking of, of baseball. And it was the biggest game in town for decades, half a century. Baseball s- stadiums were churches to people. I mean, they were cathedrals. You went to the games every day, or you if you couldn't, you'd be outside listening on the radio, or the paper boy would be, you know, extra, extra, by, you know, so-and-so shot heard around the world. It was just the biggest show in town in most big cities. It was also instrumental in the, uh, in the movement out west. The Dodgers going to L.A. was part of the solidifying Hollywood and the Southern California lifestyle. The San Francisco Giants uh, from leaving from New York. And, and then and then on from there. And it's just it's just fascinating to me. And on top of that, it's just an incredible game. It is so fundamentally um, sound and people who don't understand it just watch it and just think, man, this is boring. Um, you know, a two to one game is far more entertaining, a fundamentally well played two to one game, which a two to one game can almost has to be fundamentally played well is far more entertaining than 15 to 2. That's that's a bunch of yahoos that don't know what they're doing. That's a bunch of people that don't know how to play the game. That's not fun. Now, the cheap thrill types, the I love NBA types, and even some I like uh, you know college football types think that's probably awesome. Oh man, he just hit another home run. Oh man, he just hit five triples in a row. That's poor. That's a poor product. That's not good. And that's why I don't like college football, because it's a poor product. It's a fun product. It's a fun game. It's a fun idea, but it's fundamentally flawed. The cheap thrill types love NBA basketball because, oh, he shot a three. Whoa, he shot another three. They're doing things that actually a lot of us can go around and, and do on our own. Now, not on that capacity in the pro level. I get it. But I can go drain a three-pointer. You know, I can do something that Steph Curry did, step back and hit a three. 
I can't go do anything that a Major League Baseball player is doing. And the same respect as I can't do anything that an NFL player is doing other than we can all sling a football around, but that's a little, you know, that's different as well. But it's it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a technical, intricate game that is so fun to study and watch play-by-play, minute-by-minute, and, and every game entertains me. Uh, that's played well. As I'm already approaching 30 minutes into the show, I'll start to wind this segment down here shortly. I'll get back to what I was talking about, where I believe that the popularity of these sports, uh, the major sports are. I believe that the NFL is doomed. I think I've talked about this a little bit just in passing, but not as a show topic. The NFL is absolutely doomed. It is not fake outrage that people are scared about their health and their safety, and they they sh- you should be scared and potentially outraged about this. Um, there's just there's so many fundamentally flawed things about the NFL. They peaked way out five years ago or whatever it was. It's still a fun game. I absolutely love NFL football. I can't wait to go to the Titans game this Sunday against the Ravens. 4:30 kickoff. Can't wait. But I think the game is starting to suffer because for the last half generation, nobody's playing it anymore. And when you're when your high schools, middle schools, you know, pee wee ball, and then on up to middle high school, college. Uh, if the product is diminishing there, which it clearly is, then the product is going to diminish in the NFL as well. And I only see more uh, d- decline in in overall participation. And you're going to get plenty of still high high talented, but sometimes more hard luck kind of people um, that don't have a lot of options. And you're going to find a lot of the higher end, you know, the, where, where the fertile grounds for recruiting for all sports, Georgia, Florida, Texas, California, why are those, maybe even Ohio, why are those so fertile? Because there's so many, there's so much wealth in those states to produce and train uh, generations of ballplayers. And if they're not playing football, then they're not, you, you can see where that decline is going to be. And I see, especially on a local level, baseball is as popular as ever as, from, as far as my eyes are concerned. No, they might not blow the, the ratings away on a Sunday night like an NFL game might, but have you seen these playoff games? Did you see Atlanta on Sunday? Uh, with, the, with the night that uh, Acuna hit that, that 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 grand slam and we won that game and it was one of the most exciting games I've seen in forever. And that stadium was upside down. That The, the city of Atlanta was absolutely on fire fire rocking and rolling over one game that was just amazing to see atlanta's a bad sports town my ass atlanta's, atlanta's a very good sports town and they love their baseball as they do in most major markets i see baseball doing fine i truly believe that soccer will be as uh, one of the bigger sports in the country within 10 to 10 to 20 years probably maybe i'm wrong on that it very well could be but i love soccer I do. I think it's such a fun sport to watch once I finally understood it. It's real easy to sit back and start making fun of stuff you don't know what it is. I'm guilty of it all the time. But I, I think soccer is is here to stay. We're still not going to have the best players in the world, which makes it unique to that. So if the Atlanta United wins a championship in the MLS, well, it's not a world championship because the best players are not here. So that's a little different. And basketball again, it's a cheap thrills sport. It's a um it it's a sport I quite frankly that I think is kind of built for dullards. Um, I watch some ball basketball here and there. I, I think that the high quality basketball is, is fun to watch, but it's built on cheap thrills. Hey, look at that, another three. Hey, hit another three, you know, until the last five seconds, and that's when you finally determine the game. But that's my overall thoughts on that as I put the wraps here on the way out here. Terry Cashman, is that his name? I can barely read my handwriting. It's Willie, Mickey, and the Duke talking baseball. 
Uh, this is such an incredibly cool old song put together, in, uh, I believe it was released in 1981, and it kind of documents players from the 50s and then also into the 80s. But as far as the Braves are concerned, just an incredible year. If you don't understand, that's fine. I, I, I get it. We all have our thing. But there's something about this team that truly that that's real. That was just so the it factor that you heard on the front end there, talking uh, from hearing from the, the the manager of the Braves. It was just something different. There was something. There was a different feel to it. Now we all knew they weren't that good. They weren't really quite that good. But they. They just played together well so often during the season and just did things nobody expected. And in that one big game to give Atlanta an explosion of, a, of an emotional moment was so damn fun to watch. I mean, it's, it, it, it really is a touching, feel-good thing to me. It was so so exciting, and it meant so much to me. And uh, it's going to make this post or offseason great like for once i'm not pissed off <laughs> for once i'm not like damn it these same old stupid braves this was a refreshing brand new kind of brand of braves baseball and i was proud to uh watch it night in and night out i'm gonna step aside i'll be right back i went to court the other day why did i do that what was the deal was i in trouble is everything gonna be okay I'll get to that next. Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Quees and Barry, talking baseball. Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke. They'll be with District County Court, Latham, Massachusetts, is now in session. The Honorable Judge Arthur Vandalay presiding. <laughs> the judge's name is Vandalay? Vandalay who? Jerry, did you hear that? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good sign. Your Honor, permission to hug the witness? Granted. <laughs> Don't worry, Mr. Griffin. You're every bit as sympathetic as this chubby-cheeked cocoa angel. I haven't been listening. What's going on? Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This is a song by Neil Young called Crime in the City. And it's another case of if the only way that you could listen to this song, the only possible way to make it happen is that you turned off this podcast right now and went and listened to it, I would say turn off this podcast and go listen to Neil Young, Crime in the City from 1989's Freedom. All the children were killers. They couldn't get no relief. The bungalow was surrounded. When a voice loud and clear said, come on out with your hands up. Oh, we'll blow you out of here. It's one of those uh, just epic Neil Young songs that doesn't have a chorus. It just it just tells a story for like six and a half, maybe even upwards of eight minutes. 
It might have a little bridge like that, little interlude kind of thing, but it goes right back into the into the chorus, or not the chorus, excuse me, the just the one, the verse after verse after verse after verse. You know, you got a good song where you don't have to, speaking of cheap thrills, you don't have to cheap thrill people into like, oh, there's the good part. No, every part of this song is the good part. The producer sat back. He said, What we have got here is a perfect track. Is a perfect track. But we don't have a vocal. And we don't have a song. Appreciate you guys and gals for hanging around with the show today. I know it's not the most exciting work I've ever done. Nothing else could go wrong. Just was. Um, such an emotional ride over the weekend watching the Braves and three sisters and drinking too much and staying up too late. And hey, what's new, right? So why was I in court? First of all, I've never been in court outside of juvenile court. And I was there a handful of times, but that doesn't really count because that's not the same thing. And I think... It's, it seems like I feel like I went to court, but just opted to pay the the court fees for maybe a traffic violation post 18 years old. But I, I just don't I just don't remember because there was portions of the uh, courthouse that looked familiar to me down there, but only very small portions. So I don't remember. Maybe I have been in there for some kind of minor traffic thing, but I've never stood in front of a judge and spoke. And at this point, I still haven't. But let's rewind back to the Miller Park Grand Reopening. That was uh, September, actually I think it was 14th, if that that sounds right in my head, uh, September 14th on a Friday night. And um, I park, whenever I go do anything, nightfall, walking down towards downtown, I park on the very corner edge of the property of Cherokee Distributing, my day job that is staring directly at the front door of the Southern Star, right there at that corner. If you know the area at all, if not, it doesn't matter. It's just at the corner of of a of a big lot, uh, facing facing the road. So when I get to my car, I pull straight out. You know, there's no backing up, maneuvering around. It's just pull right out into the road. And I often get dinner from Southern Star, so I often park over there. So when I walk over to get it, I'm right across the street. So there you go. Method to madness all the time. And so I walk down to Miller Park. And in my junkie car, I have two cars now. I bought a, a semi-new one recently. I'm not sure if I've talked about it. It's not interesting enough to get into right now anyway. But I still have my old Echo. It's going on, you know, six over 16 years old, 232,000 miles. It is a pile of junk, but that thing still, the, 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 just the, the, the heart of that engine keeps ticking, and it gets great gas mileage, and I like driving it. And so I still drive it. But I don't lock the doors. I don't clean it. I don't, uh, I, I don't do anything to it except for get in it and drive it every day. Now, I carry a backpack and a clipboard, clipboard right here in my hand, and a, a, a pair of headphones, a set of headphones in my car most, most every day. And when I get in it, when I park anywhere downtown or anywhere where there's anybody going to be around, I throw anything I don't want to be stolen in the trunk because the latch is broken inside the car. You have to have the key to open the trunk. So in the trunk, I threw my bag, my clipboard, and that's it. I did not throw my headphones in there. I left, went down there, watched whatever was going on, the kind of boring music, but the fun night of opening the park. I came back, and there was a cop 
sitting right there, right, like kind of to the side, and his car facing mine with the headlights like on my car. And I'm, you know, okay, and I'm getting dropped off. And I had a couple of beers, but only quite literally a couple. And so I walk over just thinking, whatever, this is a little odd. And as I walk to my car, cop is flashes his light or waves me over. Turns out somebody who had been in my car stealing stuff out of it. Now, I never got the play-by-play, so I'm not sure how this all went down. But they eventually found the guy. They took him to where all the stuff he stole and then brought him back. And when I was walking up was the time when they, uh, when they were bringing him back. And they're like, hey, they were in your car. I was like, you know what? I don't really care about any of this dude. I mean, they, all he did was steal garbage or, you know, empty CD jewel cases. They're like, well, he's got some stuff that he's leading us to. We want to make sure that if it's not yours, to, to realize that it's somebody else's and maybe he's knocking off cars all over the place. And um, and so I said, okay, I'll stick around. And like two more cops come up there. They bring him back. They dump out all this stuff on the back of a cop car. And sure enough, it's all mine. I forgot I had a GPS in the uh, in in the glove box. I forgot that I left my headphones in the car and not in my trunk. Um, a calculator, a bunch of CDs, a bunch you know junk, mostly junk except for the GPS and the headphones. All I really cared about was the headphones, and so there you go. I'll, I'll cut this this story down as short as possible. So there was more to it than this, but not much. It's all that interesting. They're like, hey, what do you want to do? I said, listen, I don't care about this. Just let them go, whatever. And, and the and the, the woman cop I, who was doing all the legwork here, I could tell she wanted, like, she felt like she worked for this one. And she, I could see it in her face. I could see it in her eyes as I was saying, I'm not worried about it. And I stopped mid-sentence and said, okay, well, let me, let me back up. What do you think I should do? And she gave me this kind of whole spiel of, he invaded your privacy. You know, if we let him go, he's just going to go knock off the next car that he gets to. There's going to not be any re- repercussions for his actions, all those kinds of things. And uh, and and that. And I said, well, you know what? That's a good selling point. I'll I'll go with it. I'll go with it. Let, uh, let, let's press charges. And so we try to get the value of all this stuff. So it doesn't matter what the value is. It's theft under 500 probably. I mean, I don't know the, the law all that well, but I'm pretty sure that's the low end of theft under five. And so they take him, and I can tell she's happy, and it's over, and I leave, and whatever. Got all my stuff back. Didn't matter all that much. So I, then I run off to Florida, and then I come back and I live a week later, and then I come back, and I check my mail, and I've got four or five would end up being subpoenas to go to court. So I've already missed the first court date. And, um, and, and so I'm just, I, st- I have no idea what I'm getting myself into here. I've never done anything like this before. So I I, uh, I I looked through it. And I'm like, damn. I hope I didn't mess this up, or if I'm in, I don't know about in trouble, but if they threw the case out or whatever. And then I look and I see there's another one. They rescheduled it for October 4th, which was uh, just last week. And so I went 8:30 sharp. I got down there in time. I got there early, as a matter of fact. I look around. I see the guy's name. It's on the dock and on the on the old computer screen out in the hallway. Still don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I go in. I sit down in court. It's not like a check-in, right? Like, you don't sign anything to let anybody know you're there. I don't think. I don't know. Um, And so I'm just kind of watching what's happening here. The room is full of mostly people you can tell are kind of down on their luck and things aren't going well for. Kind of a uh, human interest uh, observational room overall is what it ended up being for me. And it was Judge Starnes, which I've heard that name plenty of times over the years, but it was somebody filling in for him. And he was a very, very mild-mannered man. I was kind of wanting to see somebody who might have been a little bit more, um, I don't know, I'm not trying to, not not dickheadish, but um, 
stern maybe, but just to see how that interaction went. But so I'm sitting around and I look over my shoulder and call it racial profiling if you want. Um, the guy who who was stealing my stuff was just the perfect looking definition of a of a crackhead guy. I mean, they found a crack pipe on him. So he he dudes things aren't going well for him. So I'm wondering. I don't even think that you know is the guy out on bail or bond. How does he is he going to possibly come in here for court? Like I don't. How does that work? And I look over my shoulder and I see a, a black guy who I recognized. And I don't, now I don't know where I recognized him from, but I was like, oh, look, he's here. All right. Well, good. I guess I'm glad it's good he showed up. And people are wheeling and dealing. There's co- uh, uh, attorneys coming in and out, public defenders coming in and out, uh, bought and paid for attorneys coming in and out. It's not a jury trial situation by any stretch. So there's, there's, it's keep it down, keep order, but there's a lot of moving parts. And all that was a little fascinating to, to me as well, and a friend of mine, Matt Brock, who is in, in, the, in, in the law business these days, I saw him there defending some people. So I, I was just I was mildly entertained, and I, so I didn't care that I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. But I look over and I see the DA, after I figure out who the DA is, kind of being a dick to people, I see him walk over and he points to two or three people and says, you and you and you, you're, good, you're free to go. And the guy he pointed at, you're free to go, was the guy I thought was there who was stealing from me. And so then all of a sudden I thought, okay, well, now I'm not interested in in wasting time. I'm getting out of work right now. So if I leave here, I have to go straight to work. I'm cool with hanging out here as long as I know that I'm not wasting my time. So I get up and I see the DA walk out and I follow him out. And then he's a little ahead of me and he goes into his office or what I presume to be his office. So I wait just outside the door. When he comes back out, I said, hey, uh, my apologies for being, if it, this is disruptive or, uh, annoying, whatever, I, I apologize, but I've never done this before. And he's like, well, that's a very good thing, son. You know, like, yeah, I get it. So here's the deal. I was like, I'm pretty sure. And I held up my little subpoena. I'm pretty sure that you just let this guy go. Like I thought, I think I just saw you say this guy can leave and that's fine. This is petty crime. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time worrying about it, but I'm not going to sit here all day. If you're let, if you've let this guy go. He takes it, takes it very seriously. He's very cool, very calm. And we go in there. He goes up to whoever, the madame next to the judge, whatever the clerk, woman, whatever they call her. And he goes and checks with it, comes back. He's like, oh, yeah, dude, he's he's in lockup still. He's been there since since the day. So he's, this guy's been sitting in jail since September 14th. This is October 4th for stealing compact discs, a GPS, and a pair of headphones. At least that's how I perceived it. I was like, wow. Really? All right. And I didn't know if I was going to go in front of the judge. And if I did, I was just going to say, listen, I don't. I, whatever you think is the best for rehabilitation for, for this guy is what I would suggest. But I don't even know if that's a question that he would ask me or not. I just have no idea. So eventually I get my name called out by what I believe is the, uh, the assistant district attorney. And I'm like, hey, here. And he comes over to me. And he said, hey, man, uh, this is taking a while. He's at the end of the docket here. And um, it looks like he has a string of, of burglaries and break-ins in North Georgia and more specifically in East Ridge. So a light bulb goes off in my head and I thought, really? East Ridge. All right, well, so not only have you uh, burglarized me in away from your general area in downtown in my secondary area, you're also knocking off places all over in the city that I live in. So now I went from let's do the best for this guy and try to, you know, 
be as humane as possible and, and like kind of coming from a decriminalization kind of a mindset to let's throw the book at this guy if this is something he's making a living out of, which clearly that's what it appears that he is, that's why they held him because his rap sheet of knocking off cars and and uh, businesses is uh, pretty damn long. So he says it's going to take a little while, and I've got the documentation that you're here, so you can leave. You don't have to stay. And I said, you know what? To be honest with you, I am pretty pretty entertained at this point, and the next place I have to go is work. So I'm just going to hang out here if that's cool with you. He's like, no, totally. I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll document that you're here the whole time and we'll get him up there and out. And, uh, and there you go. So then I hung around in the, in, the, in the courtroom for the rest of the morning watching one case after another and nothing overly exciting. There was uh, one almost order in the court moment where a, uh, a lady who was brought in from uh, detention, from custody, was yelling that she was supposed to get out today and she was, you know, they're out to get her and, you know, the man and all these things. And there was not quite an order, but it was very close because she was very disruptive. A little while later, there was a, um, the D, the assistant DA went up to the judge and said, uh, yeah, this next guy, uh, obviously my paraphrasing here is not very eloquent, but you know what, I guess you know what I mean here. But he says, um, I can't make a sentence of the word, any words that the guy says, something about Jesus, something about Michael Jackson. I, I don't have any idea. Like, so I'm just giving you a heads up. Dude comes in, judge is being very forgiving and very calm and very polite to everybody. And he, uh, and, and he's like, so what's your name? Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, uh, come again. What, what was that name? Michael Jackson. Uh, okay. Um, and then he tries for a few more minutes and dude's clearly either just completely mentally deranged or still high on something from whenever he got in there or both. And they send him off. No real big deal there. Um, lots of people just kind of down on their luck overall is a little depressing, but it looked to be, it felt like a room full of guilty people. And the one thing is I start to get to start to close this up and wrap up the show this week. One thing I noticed from the time I was in there was that the the concept, the idea, the feeling that most people that have to go through the justice system are being treated as guilty until proven innocent seems to be a real kind of perception or feeling or observation. This is all, well, not all, but lots of petty crime. So you can put this on a lot of different levels from murder to whatever all the way down to theft under 500. It it does seem to appear, based on the way I saw the attorneys and the DA and not the judge because this was one of the, I'd bet, nicer judges anybody's going to deal with, I did get the feeling that everybody in that room was looked at, treated, and given the attitude of, yeah, you're guilty until we decide maybe that you're not. And that sucks is just all I'll kind of leave it at that. I don't think this is a new revelation, anybody. I don't think that this is uh, and that this scenario I was in was an outlier. I don't think it was, well, I just happened to be in the court where everybody was guilty today. Um, There was a couple of times where the DA, if somebody came in a little late, you know, called them out in front of people. Oh, hey, nice of you to show up. Really Really embarrassing in a couple people, and I know that's petty small. That's not a big deal, and yeah, get there on time. I understand that. That's not even the best example. One of the better examples was is these these arrogant prick attorneys, which I could I was watching them 
I was just I had my eye on them just to see their mannerisms and their attitudes and their eye rolls. And um, they're all just kind of wheel. Most of this is plea stuff. Almost everything's a plea. It's it's not really a, a guilty, innocent thing. This is a, a, a courtroom full of plea deals. And there was one you could tell this woman she was really you know, probably a drug addict and probably had a lot of a uh, lot of issues. And she's real close within earshot of all these attorneys talking. And one of them's like, "Well, I guess I guess I'm not going out on a limb to think that uh, Mrs. So and So over here doesn't have a driver's license." Yep, nope, of course she doesn't. I mean, she's sitting right there; she can hear every word you're saying. So there was a lot of that, and I I felt like that was very unnecessary. And I don't know in those ranks, maybe that's not unprofessional. Maybe that's just how how that works. I mean, I've watched enough Law and Order SVU to get an idea of how the trial. A jury jury trial goes in the courtroom, but that's not what this was. A lot of petty crime, and uh, it could have been it, several of these could have been some kind of misunderstandings. Even though I got the feeling that several of them weren't. There was this one near me, a um, a middle aged white woman and her what appeared to be either her mom or maybe an aunt or something that was all kinds of hopped up on drugs or, or strung out and, and lack of drugs at that point. And she, I'd heard her talk about she was her caretaker, the, the younger uh, middle-aged white woman was. And she they had to climb through the pews over me where I was a couple of times, and they're overly apologetic. And I kept saying, it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And I come across, I look, because I don't even, I don't dress nice when I go there. I'm just wearing regular old clothes, just not a hat on. I blend in with the riffraff, right? Generally speaking, most times when you see me walking around, I closer to blend in with the types that are trying to get out of crimes they've committed as opposed to guilty people being uh, being accused of crimes. Uh, it's just my style. It's the way I've always been. Uh, the, the dope smoking looking kind of guy. And I'm okay with that. And she walked by, or, or one of her times walking back by, coming through the pew, and she like kind of whispered to me like, God, this is such fucking bullshit. Like, we get it, right? We're on the same page here. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And whatever it is going on here, I have a feeling you're uh, guilty as sin. But um, anyway, that's kind of what I gathered from that. It was uh, it was an interesting day, and I stayed from 8.30 until about 11.30. I could have left probably around 10. Stuck around just a little while longer. I wanted to see how some of these went down. It was just one of those, like, I wonder what that one in shackles over there. I wonder what she, he or she is going to get for... Uh, for what happened to, or what she or he didn't or might have done. It was a fascination case, fascinating case of just watching people do the work they do and how they do it. And that can be anybody from, you know, watching people work on cars to working on boats to working on people's, uh, you know, anatomy in the, in, in the healthcare industry or, you know, running a radio show. I remember people would come into the radio when we were doing the live rolling talk radio stuff and were fascinated by what we were doing and would often be just like, man, you guys make this look so easy. I heard that so many times. And because at the end of the day, it is easy. We make it look easy because it is easy after you do it for a decade and a half. And that's true with just about any uh, anybody's uh, industry and, uh, and, and whatever it might be. So that was all I got on that, I guess. So, yeah, I hung out in court and there said no phones, but I put out a, a story on Instagram anyway and took my chances to not get called out by the... Uh, whatever you call the main cop that keeps the order in the room or whatever. But 
So that's all I got for one uh, half birthday, October 10th, 2018. I am 38 and a half years old. So as I mentioned before, feel free to tell me happy half birthday on social media. Don't care if you do it on my real birthday. I mean, it's kind of nice, but it would be really fun to get happy half birthdays on uh, Facebook tomorrow. And you can celebrate a half birthday, too, if you would like. I don't know what's going on the next week or so other than I'm off to Nashville for a, a game. I, I might get back to some uh, national stuff and things that have a little bit more substance to it rather than just anecdotal portions of my life. But uh, I'm just bored with a lot of that stuff. I just really am. But if it's worth going down that road, I will. Once again, this one's Neil Young, Crime in the City. You'll find it on his 1989 album, Freedom. And it is must-listen, appointment-listen. And it's one of those read-the-lyrics-along-with-it. And the story is being told, and it's just so much fun. Y'all take care. I love you to death. Get rid of this evidence, and we'll do it again next week. As he picked up the phone and said, send me a songwriter. Who's drifting?